And the people of Israel went down to Egypt. There they multiplied and prospered. But a new king arose who afflicted them. God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant, saw them, and knew their suffering. The Egyptians ruthlessly made people work as slaves. And God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant, saw them, and knew. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. And God heard, he remembered his covenant. God sent um, a child named Moses. His mother hid him in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter took pity on him, because God saw and remembered. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said, I have come down to deliver the people. I am who I am. He hears, remembers, sees, and knows. Thanks be to God, our deliverer. Thanks be to God, our friend. This is the, the liturgy reading. Today's scripture reading uh, comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. That's again the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. I'll be reading it aloud today in the English Standard Version, and you'll see again uh, the passage come up to you on my left here. Let's read together, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, um, and, uh, and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may go serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is God's word. Today, Minister Jeff will be continuing our sermon series uh, from Exodus. And the sermon will be titled, uh, Return God's Commission. Minister Jeff, over to you. There's this famous scene in the movie Taken. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Now, in this movie, Liam Neeson plays this former government operative who finds out that his daughter is kidnapped overseas and about to be sold into slavery, into human trafficking. And so he gets on the phone with these abductors and he says those famous lines, which I'll read, but I'm not going to try to impersonate for you for, for your sake and mine. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, 
I will look for you. I will find you. And, and basically he goes on, it's, it's not going to end well for these abductors. What a father would do to rescue his child, especially from suffering, from slavery, evil. In our passage this morning, we're going to see something similar in God's instructions to Moses and in God's relationship with his people Israel. Now, clearly no analogy is ever perfect. That's why it's an analogy. Liam Neeson is not God. He's not a God, even if he did play Zeus in that other movie. And the actions of God in our passage this morning, we need to treat them in a way that comprehends the character of the one behind these actions, namely God himself, Yahweh God. Now our passage begins with Moses. He, he's been called and commissioned by God to deliver his people Israel. Now Moses embarks now on his return to Egypt. For the Lord had said to Moses in verse 19, Go back to Egypt, for the, all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now remember that a lot of time has passed. Now we're in the fourth chapter of Exodus, but a lot of time has passed. Forty years has passed, in fact. Moses is now 80 years old as he goes to speak to Pharaoh. But the Pharaoh that he's speaking to now is not necessarily the same one who was in power and who sought to kill Moses back in chapter 2. You see, it was common practice back then uh, in the ancient world for a new government to cancel the penalties of the old government. So in canceling these penalties, they granted amnesty to prisoners and to those who were sought after by the law. And so I, I think that's what's probably happening here is that Moses is no longer a wanted criminal. He's no longer a fugitive. He doesn't have to be on the run anymore. There's a new pharaoh, a new government. And as God said, all the people who wanted you dead are now dead. So Moses, with the assurance of God, and the staff of God in his hand, while well, he, uh, he sets out. He takes his wife and his kids, hops onto a donkey, and he heads back to Egypt. Uh, but God has some specific instructions for him first. The Lord continues, verse 21 and 23, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so what we see set forth in these few verses is this. The price for son is a son. The price for son is a son. Verses 21 and 23. So let's kind of break this down a little bit further. What's, what's going on here? First, uh, God's firstborn son Israel are slaves in, to Pharaoh and unable to serve God. That's verse 22. You know, we see here that God's people collectively are for the very first time in this book called God's son. And so as we're working our way through Exodus, do you see the, the trajectory here? You know, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we saw it began with the sons of Israel. They were fruitful, they, they multiplied, they grew in number, and they became the people of Israel. And now the people of Israel find their collective identity 
in God as his son, and more so as his firstborn son. See, it's pretty significant that God is instructing Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. The firstborn son in the ancient world, well, he was the one specially favored with inheritance. And for the original readers, for Moses' audience, and for us, we should know in part kind of what that inheritance entails. In part, it means the, the promised land. In addition to all the spiritual blessings and, and having the presence of God among them, the firstborn son was also the one who would represent the father as the son grew into maturity and, and got more and more responsibilities. And again, it, this makes sense for the people of Israel. M Michael Goheen, in one of his books, he explains it this way. The nation of Israel was to be a display people, embodying in its communal life God's original creational intention and eschatological goal for humanity. He would come and dwell among them and give them his Torah to direct their corporate life in his way. God's people were to be an attractive sign before all nations of what God had intended in the beginning, and of the goal toward which he was moving, the restoration of all creation and human life from the corruption of sin. To the firstborn son, he had an inheritance. He was supposed to represent God. The firstborn son in ancient Israelite history is also devoted to God. He belonged specifically, especially to God. Later on in Exodus, God actually explains in Exodus 13 too, he says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and a beast, is mine. Every firstborn a man among your sons you shall redeem. And so what this means is that there's this special uh, buyback or redemption fee. And this fee was for the parents to symbolically take back their firstborn and recognize through this act that the son was by right God's and not theirs. And this is significant because when you think about the situation that we find Israel in, Pharaoh has enslaved Israel. That goes against every aspect of what it means for Israel to be God's firstborn son. So being enslaved meant, well, no inheritance, no promised land. They're in Egypt. They can't, they can't go to the promised land. And therefore, no blessing to the nations. The, the Abrahamic promises are in jeopardy. Uh, being enslaved meant Israel, well, they couldn't really represent God and to show forth his glory to all the nations because you know, they're enslaved. And so all the surrounding nations are going to look at this nation and be like, why would I want to worship your God? This is what it means to be his people? I, I don't want that. Being enslaved also declared that Israel belonged to Pharaoh and not God. So what we have here is cosmic treason. Pharaoh in complete and utter rebellion against the one and true living God. And so a big part of the problem here that we find in our passage this morning is that Israel is serving the wrong master. That's why God says to Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that, you know, the, with the purpose of, for the purpose of that he may serve me. Let my son go that he may serve me. Not you, Pharaoh, me. Some of you might remember from the very first sermon in this series, we talked about the outline of Exodus. 
how it was broken up and there was this two-part bifid composition. You know, chapters 1 to 19 more or less and chapters 20 to 40. So one of the ways for us to understand this outline was not so much actually going from slavery to freedom, even though that might be how we often tend to think about Israel's freedom and, and redemption, but really about deliverance from bad servitude to good servitude. And so Exodus paints this picture of a good, divine, universal, cosmic leader God coming in, rescuing his chosen people, his firstborn son Israel, from a bad human national leader, Pharaoh. And over and over and over again in this Exodus account, as Pharaoh gets warning after warning, plague after plague, chance after chance, he is repeatedly told by God, let my people go that they may serve me. And because the reality of the situation was that Israel was serving Pharaoh, not God. Back in Exodus 1, 13 and 14, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that word work that we saw back in those few verses, it's the same word as serve here. Israel is serving Pharaoh as slaves when they should be serving God as sons. So this is not good. And so what does God intend to do if Pharaoh continues to re resist and rebel? Verse 23, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. As God kind of warned and told Moses earlier, but I know that the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So God saves Israel, his firstborn son, by taking Pharaoh's firstborn son. The price for a son is a son. There's actually two firstborn sons in our chapter today. Well, actually there's three, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about the third one until two weeks from now. But for now, we see that there's God's firstborn son, Israel, and then there's Pharaoh's firstborn son. There's this comparison going on here. Now what God says he will do as he pronounces judgment on this wicked king of Egypt, it's not an easy thing for us to hear. You see, even as I might point out some of what's going on in our passage, even as we might be reminded that, hey, this is the character of God, he is holy, he is just, and he is still good. It probably won't alleviate all the discomfort we might have. You see, and God, God says to Moses in verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And so some of us might be wondering, how can God punish Pharaoh for refusing to let his people go when God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart and making it so he's going to say no. Well, this idea of heart hardening actually appears 19 times throughout the book of Exodus, particularly in the chapter with the plagues, when Pharaoh gets you know, plague after plague, warning after warning. 
So if you can count them up, out of those 19, this idea of heart-hearting appears in one of at least three ways. So one of the first ways is that it's descriptive. So it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? That's the passive voice. It's being acted on, uh, upon. It doesn't really say who's doing the action. It merely states the condition of his heart. It was hard without pointing to who did the hardening. Now, the second way that we see it appear is that it says that Pharaoh is the cause. So it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the third way is that it says God is the cause. So it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, was it Pharaoh or was it God? Yes. Divine hardening, as one scholar put it, a divine hardening and self-hardening are interwoven. This is why the psalmist can write, you know, today if he hears voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Because he recognizes that there's a responsibility in our parts to respond by softening our hearts. To respond to God by softening our hearts. Even as God intervenes. Now what's going on here is that God is strengthening Pharaoh's resolve to withstand the pressure of giving in because of the plagues. Ultimately, these plagues were, were signs to showcase God's sovereignty over Egypt, over creation, over the world, over the, the false gods of Egypt as well, so as to proclaim his name and synonymously demonstrate his glory. Now, as we think about the situation, we have to recognize that Pharaoh is not a morally neutral character. Some of the discomfort that we might uh, have or be feeling is, is because we assume in our subconscious, maybe perhaps that you know, Pharaoh is a good guy. You know, all of Egypt is a good guy, but most of Egypt is complicit in the, the slavery of, uh, of Israel. It's a broken system. Pharaoh has been enslaving and killing countless people. And not just any people, God's people, God's firstborn son. So it's not as if Pharaoh is this you know, morally righteous character, guy who, who says, you know, I really want to worship the God of Israel. And I want to lay aside my own gods. I want to lay aside myself as a God and worship the one true living God. And God is like, the God of Israel is like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you worship me. That's not what's happening here. Pharaoh's natural disposition, especially as one who views himself to be divine, is to say to the one and true living God, No, I will not let your people go. So God, in his judgment on Pharaoh, hands him over to his own sin. So that Pharaoh, having planted his stake in the ground, now doubles down on his rebellion against God even as he experiences chance after chance to turn, plague after plague, culminating in the death of the firstborn, including his own. He continues to double down with his hard heart and say no. I think one way that might help us think about this interplay and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is this. I have a, a candle here. Uh, Ian and I actually have a couple in our home. Uh, she always buys several when they're on sale and then when there's coupons too, so you can stack, stack, stack it on top of it because that's how we do. You might be able to see uh, that we're almost down to the bottom of this particular candle. You can kind of see the wicks there. Now in our home, we, we like to 
reuse these jars and uh, that requires us to clean it out because we want to you know, put in candy or put in combs or whatnot. Uh, now there's a whole process to clean this out. At the end of the night when we blow out the, the candles, the, the wax will harden on its own. And it's going to be hard, as you can see right now, but maybe not hard enough to make my job of kind of cleaning out the leftover wax, uh, cleaning out this jar any easier. So what I do is I put this candle in the freezer uh, overnight. And so in one sense, I am hardening the, the wax, or the freezer is. But in a, another sense, the freezer is only intensifying or strengthening that which was already happening, which is the wax becoming hard. The freezer just, just makes it that much harder. And so that when I take it out, I can take a knife and just pry it off. Pry out these pieces of frozen, hard wax. So Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh, with his hard heart, refuses to let God's people go. The price for a son is a son. God's firstborn son, Israel, they're slaves and unable to serve God. And, and now, what is the significance and the relevance of all this for us today? Because we're not Israelites, so in that sense, in that sense we're not God's children, his sons or daughters. Neither are we literally enslaved, but maybe perhaps as we zoom out and see this grand narrative of God's plan of salvation, we can maybe perhaps begin to see what's going on in our passage in Exodus. How our passage fits within the greater narrative of Exodus and how Exodus as a whole fits in within the greater narrative of the Bible. And all this, how all this ties to the gospel in Jesus Christ. And therefore us as well. So specifically, it's this. God saves those who are slaves to become those who are his sons. Let me say that again. God saves those who are slaves to become those who are his sons. Now, let's see how we went from Exodus to this. Because clearly our situation and Israel's situation are not too similar. Now, we may not be literal slaves, but God's word does paint a picture where we are slaves to sin and still unable to serve God. So in this sense, spiritually, we find ourselves in a predicament analogous to Israel. Paul writes in Romans 6 that we're enslaved to sin. So being enslaved to sin means that our identity, our lives, all that belongs to sin. And when sin enslaves us, it distorts our reality and our desires. It promises what it can never deliver. So we have this spiritual myopia or this nearsightedness that cannot see clearly that our desires for sin lead to death and destruction rather than life and liberty. When sin enslaves us, it dictates our decisions, not for our benefit but for our destruction. We're bound to offer sacrifices to appease whatever sin or idol we behold. But we fail to recognize that the idols we are spiritually enslaved to have this voracious appetite that does not cease until it swallows us whole. 
we also fail to see that God, rather than us offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to appease God, God is the one who becomes the sacrifice in Jesus for us. But we're getting a, a little ahead of ourselves. So back to sin. When sin enslaves us, it destroys our freedom. We're in service to sin, but this service is ultimately destructive and damning. If you want to think about what being slaves to sin looks like, look to the character of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He was enslaved to that ring, calling it his precious, not even recognizing that it began to change his appearance. It deformed him, it, it changed his nature, it changed even what he ate, so that he became an empty shell, a shadow of what he was meant to be. It changed even his own name. And spoiler alert, it led to his own demise. And at the end of the movie, as he falls off the ledge into that lava, completely focused on the ring in his hand, he was oblivious to the fact that he's falling to his own death. When God says to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me, one of the points that's being made here is that we're all created to serve or worship something or someone. For Israel, it was Pharaoh or God. For us, it's sin or God. Paul writes in Romans 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He goes on later at the end of this passage, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We were made to worship, made to serve. Do you see what, what Paul is doing here? He's saying you've been set free, and in that very same sentence, just a few words later, he still calls us slaves or, or servants of God. We have the freedom to serve now. Now, we might think that freedom means having no restrictions, but that's not necessarily the case, as Paul kind of is pointing out. Uh, Tim Keller kind of expands on this idea in one of his books. He says, there in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. And so as Keller puts it, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. And he goes on to show how this is true. He says, because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. And he gives a couple other examples, too, in our lives where this is true. 
dieting, for example. We may have the, the freedom to eat whatever we want, but in doing so, we actually will find it to be less free because it harms our health and our well-being. And so, you know, we might actually restrict our freedom by dieting in order to get a richer, deeper freedom of good health and longer life. Another example might be practicing a, a new instrument. We restrict ourselves to practicing and learning this new instrument. Maybe for some of you, you guys can relate when you learn the piano or guitar or drums or violin or any other instrument. As we dedicate more time and energy into this, we're going to find the deeper freedom, freedom of being able to play this instrument uh, well, and, and especially in a way that expresses ourselves. So think back to when you were first learning that instrument. If you had lessons to go to, you had to practice every day after school, didn't particularly feel free, I'm sure. Your hands were stiff. You struggled to play. You struggled to read the music at the same time and maybe you needed someone, maybe uh, your mom or your dad to help flip the page uh, as you continued playing or you needed to stop completely in order for you yourself to flip the page. Now over time as you restricted yourself, perhaps you were able to experience a richer, deeper freedom in playing the instrument. Over time your hands begin to soften. Your bo entire body begins to flow with the music and the instrument. Maybe perhaps you even get to the point where you're not tied to the music sheets in front of you. You can close your eyes and, and play. In the same way scripture tells us of our condition. We either serve our sin as slaves or we serve God as sons and daughters. And there's true freedom in the latter. God saves those who are slaves to become those who are his sons. Now the question is how? How does he do this? What is Exodus kind of pointing towards? Well, God saves us by sending Jesus Christ, his firstborn son. There's a number of comparisons, uh, maybe implicitly, between Christ and our passage this morning. Back earlier, we saw this principle of a of a son for a son. But Israel, you know, though they were freed from slavery to serve God in the book of Exodus, the reality was they were still in slavery to sin, like the rest of humanity. Israel had repeatedly broken the covenant with God. Now, God had rescued his son Israel by taking Pharaoh's son. But we're in a different situation now. So what is God going to do? What has he done? To save his son Israel, he will send his son Jesus. In the New Testament, we see the experiences of Israel typified and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually called God's firstborn son. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And Jesus did what Israel couldn't do. <coughs> Excuse me. He was perfect, without fault and sin, con continually faithful, continually obedient. 
He came as the sacrificial son to save us in order that we might be redeemed from serving sin so that we might become sons and daughters of God. And as those of us who are not part of Israel, this is what Paul writes in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So our response to worship, obey, and serve God. We see that this is Israel's response at the end of this chapter. We're going to see more of that in the next sermon. But for now, thanks be to God, who in Jesus Christ saved those who are slaves, you and me, to become those who are sons and daughters. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you had sent your son Jesus to save us, that we might be adopted in, that we might be freed to serve you as sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.